Hello, everyone. This is Katya, and you are listening to The Slavic Connection. Today, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with none other than my mother, Dr. Susan Crate. We spent a month in Zaporozhye studying, and then we spent a month traveling. One of the cities we went to was Kharkov, and there we met the local folklorist who had the work of going out into the oblast, the Kharkov oblast, and collecting the traditional songs of mostly older women, but some older men too. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome back, Dr. Susan Great. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. It's really nice to have you back. How has your uh, quarantine been going so far? So far, so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Turns out that I have a lot of materials from earlier work that I'm able to go through. One of the things I've been working on. So, Dr. Crate, last time we had you on the show, you talked a lot about your current research that you do in Siberia and kind of ha- your path to Siberia. And one of the steps along the way in your journey, uh, you ended up in eastern Ukraine. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how you got there, what you were doing there. I understand you collected some ethnomusicological research there. That's right. And this was actually before I learned about Lake Baikal. I believe I mentioned that in our first podcast that one of the attractions to go to Siberia in the first place was because I learned about Lake Baikal, the deepest, oldest lake, etc., On the way there, though, I started to learn the Russian language in the summer of 1988 in Ukraine, and we spent a month in Zaporozhye studying, and then we spent a month traveling. One of the cities we went to was Kharkov, and there, among a few other people that we met, we met the local folklorist who had the work of going out into the oblast, the Kharkov oblast, and collecting the traditional songs of mostly older women, but some older men too. How, how did you find that process? What was it like? Can you describe a little bit what a, a typical day kind of looked like? Sure. So I actually went to Kharkov in order to study Russian in the uh, 89-90 academic year. And it was during that time... Uh, that I would go on the weekends, and then when we had breaks in classes at the university, I would spend more time in the field with uh, these groups. Uh, The woman who headed this all up, her name is Vera Nikolaevna Osadcha. She lives in Kharkov proper, and we would go out to the villages, and mostly we would contact the person who worked at the Dome, the House of culture, Dom Cultura, and they would arrange for the local singers to get together and sing for us. In fact, would you like me to read some of my journal? Yeah, I would love to. I Unfortunately, I, I do keep journals now, but it's all on my laptop. Back then, I didn't use a laptop. This was 1989-1990, but I kept very extensive journals, and it's been very interesting to go back into them. So here is a journal entry from 1990. 
I arrived yesterday on the 8.30 train, met by Vera, Lonya, and Katya, exchanged hellos, then sent Lonya and Katya off with my bags, and Vera and I set off on our first project. We first hunted down a couple cups of coffee, then to the bus station where we met Vita, the artistic director, and Sasha, the director, from the local TV. They were with us to plan a TV report on the traditions in the Oblast. The ride took an hour, panning the rich Ukrainian farms and villages. Vera talked a lot the entire way about our plans for the next few days to go here and there and the basic idea of our work together. She also pointed out the different regions of Kharkov, and as Kharkov grew, these villages became part of the city. That's why it's very common to be in what appears to be a village and suddenly hit a city block. We arrived in our first village and hunted down the person who, quote, has the key to the folklore in the region, as Vera announced. After eating at the town cafeteria, we were off on the very bumpy road to the first village, where we stopped at the town culture house. We waited, singing with the goats in the backyard. We were called inside, and there serenaded by two women, one very rotund, with a scarf tied around her short, scraggly blonde hair, which ended in a huge bow over her face. She was wrapped in a semi-traditional skirt and a pseudo-traditional Ukrainian shirt. Her voice was the strongest memory I have of the place. It cut through the very walls around us. She spoke from the front of her mouth through her teeth and used every corner of her mass as an amplifier. Her partner was dressed plainly, brown dress, and her voice was good but nothing by comparison. They sang four or five songs, and Vera explained that they were not traditional but that they performed in a humorous style. In the first song, the plain woman held a kettle with a towel, insinuating that it was hot, and she hid it from the other. It seems that she had stolen the other woman's chicken and cooked and eaten it. Through the course of the song, the rotund woman finally discovers the pot and pulls out two chicken feet, lamenting about her poor chicken. The rotund woman was a trip to watch. She was so full of herself and had an infectious laugh. Vera, Vita, and Sasha discussed which numbers would work for their report, and we left for the next village. Wow, that's amazing. This is kind of a, it's a field note, but it's also a diary, but it's also a lot more descriptive than, than what I traditionally think of when I think of, you know, doing field field research. But I'm sure that was a really great find in bringing back memories for you. Yeah, it's much more detailed than I remembered, but that's what happens in 30 years time. Would you like to hear a one of the songs? Yeah. Maybe you're anxious to hear that. Let's listen to a joking song from Raketnaya, uh, seeing as these women were doing sort of joking type songs. And what, what was the function of a joking song? Is it kind of in the same vein as a riddle song, maybe? Well, riddle songs were known, this was, riddle songs are ancient and... Riddles were actually, uh, the more riddle songs you knew, it was thought to be an expression of your intelligence because this was in pre-literate times. And so singing and stories, these were all ways to uh, pass along and learn and understand the world. And joking songs and riddle songs were a sign of being able to um, know a lot. So not only being able to convey stories and information, but doing it in a in a clever 
way. Exactly. Right? Okay. So yeah, let's play a joking song. So that was really incredible. Do you maybe have a little section, you know, you would want to continue with a, oh, uh, one more section of your, of your journal? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Actually, this is a continuation um, of the same page of the journal. And so uh, we left for the next village is what I had just mentioned. More bumpy roads and up a steep climb to the next village. The village actually began at the base of the hill. There was a sports field and a producti store, which is basically a food store, with a colorful array of babushkis and old men perched on the stairs and pilings under the shade of a few scraggly trees. The road was being repaved, or maybe paved for the first time, and the bus had to dodge the potholes and the piles of asphalt waiting to be spread. At the top of the hill was the church on the right. Vita, Vera, and Sasha were all instantly curious about the church. It was crumbling with the march of time and was now a home for numerous families of pigeons with their droppings and newly hatched eggshells scattered on the floor. The earth was slowly taking back the church. Across from it was the culture house. We located the woman in charge of the ensemble and as it turns out, they were expecting us at 11.30 and it was now two o'clock and they'd all gone home for lunch. Part of this work, commented Vera, it was decided that we would cruise around the village and scout out the site for the filming, and at the same time we would collect the babushkis of the ensemble. It was a trip, especially turning the bus around down some of the tiny dirt roads. Each stop added one or two new babushkis to the ensemble, each one the same but different. Smiling gold and silver teeth, big felt slippers, flowered scarves, sturdy, solid bodies, skin weathered and suntanned, demarcating facial lines from years of squinting, laughing, crying, and singing. We had to traverse to the other end of the village for some of them, passing a huge lush field of gardens with people working the soil, then a family of geese, newborns with their fuzzy first feathers still intact. The first babushki on this side of town was escorted to the bus by her three grandchildren, who raced into the bus, giggling and quickly finding one seat in the back their blue eyes sparkling and their blonde hair shining in the midday sun. The babushki was the last to get on the bus, and when I saw her, I knew where their blue eyes and blonde hair came from her. A moment's glance behind me to where they all assembled, and it felt like I was looking into a hundred years, a peek into history, generations. In that brief moment, I flashed on the little girl that babushka was at one time, and I saw the babushkis that the little girls would grow into all too soon. Do you remember what village you were in? I did not write the names down in here. If I went back into the recordings and... The dates on the cassettes, of course, as I mentioned, I was writing in a journal. This was also the time of cassettes 
and rolls of film, which, you know, we don't even think about that now, but I would go there with these boxes of materials like that. It was pretty intense. And then you would come back with boxes of material using that material that you brought. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the different types of songs that you recorded. I see here that there's a special, there are a couple special songs uh, for celebrating what are what were then what became Ukrainian Christian songs, Orthodox songs, but they had their origins in in pagan traditions. Right, that's right. New Year songs. Uh, Malanka was the name of the old calendar New Year period, and there was a traditional song Shidrivka, which was a song that was sung uh, in April because. Pre-Christian uh, Ukrainians celebrated uh, the New Year in the April time, as many pre-Christian cultures across the world did. Uh, and so what I'd like to do is play a little bit of Milanka, which is a New Year song of Old New Year. And then that's from the village of Dim- Dimitrovka. And then play Ivan Kupala, and I'll explain a little bit about that too. Here's Melanka. And then I also mentioned Ivan Kupala. Kupala is a pre-Christian celebration of Ukrainian cultures, and it was uh, midsummer. And when the Christian church came in, they renamed it Ivan Kupala. Ivan is John, so it was uh, a symbolization of John the Baptist, and it was about uh, baptism. Uh, but the tradition is that on midsummer they make a huge bonfire and it's supposed to be a time when young couples jump over the bonfire and if they let go of each other as they're jumping over it says something about the uh, tenacity of their relationship i think most listeners might be familiar with the the imagery most associated with ivan kupala in russia and ukraine so these large uh, garlands that are worn on on the heads of unwed young girls and women, mm-hmm. and everyone's dressed in white clothing to mm-hmm. kind of symbolize purity mm-hmm. and like rebirth, and you know there's fire and everything. Uh, did you have the chance to go to Ivan Kupala? I did not. I did not. As I said, I was in Kharkov uh, during the academic year, so I wasn't there for midsummer. That summer, I was actually in Tuva. This Ivan Kupala song is from the village of Izum. Izum, like Russian for a raisin. Raisin, yeah.
That's haunting. Yeah, I was going to say there's a kind of haunting feeling to that. Um, very beautiful. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about Vera Nikolaevna. Have you kept in touch with her at all? Do you know what she's been up to now and kind of where the project that you the project that you were able to participate in, where that went? Sure. So I do keep in touch with Vera. Uh, actually, her daughter uh, married a Canadian man and they live up in Vancouver recently had a uh, child, and we're all in contact, mostly via Facebook, but I do Skype with Vera from time to time. The uh, contribution that I made to uh, the, the artistic center where Vera worked was that I transferred all the recordings that I had to CDs and sent uh, two copies of each over to them so that, well, let me just explain a little bit about the work that they do. When I was there, uh, I was able to not just go to the villages, as I have been talking about, but I also got to uh, participate in what they did with the recordings that they made in the villages. And one of the main, uh, one of the main objectives that they had was to transcribe the songs, so put them into notation, and then teach young people. They had a uh, an ensemble. Uh, they not only learned all of the different parts that these elders sang in these various villages, but they also donned traditional uh, Ukrainian clothing, which uh, is no surprise that, of course, the traditions are different from village to village in terms of what people wear. And how many villages did they did this project encompass? Well, the I went with Vera to a dozen villages, but and and she has told me that there were there are 800 villages uh, wow. in the Oblast, the Kharkov Oblast. I don't know the exact area of that, but that's a lot. Uh, and back when I was Doing this work with Vera in 1990, there were there was at least one ensemble in every village. So this was a time of um, a very compared to now, where there's hardly any uh, of the people left that I recorded. But more importantly, there are very few of these living ensembles, and by that I mean women and men who have learned these songs from their parents and elders and are passing this on through the through the generations. So back when I was doing this work, as I mentioned, we would bring the songs back, they would work on the different parts, they would learn them in these ensembles, they would present them and sing uh, for all various types of events. And as I mentioned, I was there in 89 and 90, 91, the Soviet Union fell, and there was a huge uh, revival of Ukrainian folk heritage, including these songs, and so their work became even more important. Uh, there was sort of a uh, huge development, uh, one ensemble that I think to this day still uh, tours internationally. It's very well known. Uh, and 
In 2018, however, with the cutting back on resources and financial um, support for these, let's say, 800 villages in the Kharkov Oblast, there's been a big effort across Russia. We even see this in the Saha region where there's a consolidation. Uh, I, I think you mean across you. Ukraine, like in Russia as well, right? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. No. yeah. And so what they're doing is they're basically bringing people in from these smaller villages and bringing them into the larger villages. So this consolidation is affecting these living traditions. But I also already mentioned there are fewer people who sing in these villages. So a lot of the work they're doing now is to actually take the recordings that they did 20, 30 years ago where there were these nasital, these people who carried on these traditions and teaching them to the people in the villages who are interested in learning their traditions. So it's, it's kind of inside out now. Right, right. So you're talking about all these changes, changes in the number of people who are studying and documenting these songs and kind of perpetuating this aspect of tradition. I'm sure another change, though, just has come about with time, and that's the fact that these people who you recorded and who Vera recorded don't are no longer around, correct? Yeah, that's right. In fact, she's told me recently that all of the people that I worked with are gone except for one woman, who is 86, so I assume, you know, to do the math, at the time she was 56, and she actually sang the very high part in the wedding song uh, from the village of Kisali. And just to tell a little bit about this wedding songs, uh, there are several different kinds of wedding songs, and one of them is uh, a song of lament, and it's sung by the bride, or it's sung, it's sung by the choir, but it is representing the bride who is anxious and anticipating the fact that she has to move in with her in-laws. And so she's, she's afraid and maybe getting cold feet about it all. And there's usually this very high wailing voice in, in amongst this. And um, so this woman sang that part. But let's, let's play one of the wedding songs from Kisali and listen to it.
I, that really high voice, I think if I didn't have the context for it, I would have thought that it was, you know, a little strange, but it's really interesting that there's that story behind it. And it also kind of ties into this theme in this overall project of, of talking about location and like specific ties to, to kinship, specific ties um, to certain areas that make these particular songs in these villages special, right? Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up because from the very moment that I started working with Vera, she constantly reminded me when we went to each village, she would remind me that the traditions in this village are different. And she made a point, we didn't just record songs, she made a point of asking about what were their wedding traditions, what were their funeral traditions, etc. The most diverse and varietal, of course, were the wedding traditions. And I imagine that's just because it's such a time of of both joy and uh, fear, I guess, as we've already talked about in some ways. The unknown, what's going to be coming. But I, I just wanted to mention also that Vera Nikolaevna is very committed to this work. She continues to do it. Um, I mentioned, I think, in 2018, I started to talk about 2018, that when that consolidation process occurred, one of the things that also occurred was that the uh, Academy of Arts, where she had a department of uh, folk tradition within it, a uh, special office of folk singing that was removed basically or Mm. it was folded uh, because of financial issues so it became you know there weren't enough students who were filling the seats to justify it let's say in the eyes of the administration so Vera's work went into the department of Estrada singing uh, or Estrada performance. Uh, so she she wanted me to know that she continues to do her work and she still has students and they're still doing this. Uh, again, what they're doing more than before is going out and teaching people in the villages what the traditions of their specific village were that they were able to record. And Vera is very adamant about the importance of this. And she talks about, it reminds me of a lot of the work that I've done and that I've documented in other places, the importance of place and the importance of uh, the specific details of place and the specific traditions of place and how important it is for a person to know their roots and to be able to perpetuate their ethnic consciousness as a sign of, of of being and a sign of being in place. So I think we've kind of saved the, the, in my opinion, one of my favorite category of song, the lyrical song, the ballad, um, for last. And there are two ballad songs that, that you have for us today. May I just ask why you like them so much? Do you have any experience with them? 
I studied abroad in St. Petersburg and I sang in the choir there and a lot of the songs that we we sang were uh, this genre of song. And I also think that there's a certain there's a certain feature of the melody or maybe the certain feature of how many voices sing at once and how they harmonize that stirs something in me. It's a very it's a very wondrous type of feeling and I think it almost compels someone to to want to join in when they hear this type of singing. So let's play let's play one of these ballads. This is a, a ballad from Rakyatnaya, which is where the joking song that we played earlier was from as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you took the time to to sit down with me and talk about this. My pleasure. And I can't wait to potentially have another episode with you and talk about your time in Tuva. I would love to do that. And I could do a show on Buryatia too. I mean, the sky's the limit. Yeah. Things to look forward and to. And we do have time. We do. We do. So I think we're just going to play one more ballad song to, to end sure. this. Sure. And I'd like to just mention that I do not know the Ukrainian language, and so if there's anybody who's listening to this podcast and wants to give me some, want to give me some feedback on the songs or anything, uh, I would be very, very interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jack, you, Dr. Crate. expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.